0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, chapters five and six, from Wilkie Collins, The Moonstone. And now, chapter five. The first thing I did, after we were left together alone, was to make a third attempt to get up from my seat on the sand. Mr. Franklin stopped me. There is one advantage about this horrid place, he said. We have got it all to ourselves. "'Stay where you are, better edge. "'I have something to say to you.' "'While he was speaking, I was looking at him "'and trying to see something of the boy I remembered "'in the man before me. "'The man put me out. "'Look as I might, I could see no more of his boy's rosy cheeks "'than of his boy's trim little jacket. "'His complexion got pale. "'His face, at the lower part, was covered. "'To my great surprise and disappointment,' "'with a curly brown beard and mustachios. "'He had a lively touch-and-go-way with him, "'very pleasant and engaging, I admit, "'but nothing to compare with his free and easy manners of other times. "'To make matters worse, he had promised to be tall "'and had not kept his promise. "'He was neat and slim and well-made, "'but he wasn't by an inch or two up to the middle height. "'In short, he baffled me altogether.' "'The years that had passed had left nothing of his old self, "'except the bright, straightforward look in his eyes. "'There I found our nice boy again, "'and there I concluded to stop in my investigation. "'Welcome back to the old place, Mr. Franklin,' I said. "'All the more welcome, sir, "'that you have come some hours before we expected you.' "'I have a reason for coming before you expected me,' "'answered Mr. Franklin. "'I suspect Betteredge." "'that I have been followed and watched in London for the past three or four days, "'and I have travelled by the morning instead of the afternoon train, "'because I wanted to give a certain dark-looking stranger the slip.' "'Those words did more than surprise me. "'They brought back to my mind, in a flash, the three jugglers "'and Penelope's notion that they meant some mischief to Mr. Franklin Blake. "'Who's watching you, sir, and why?' I inquired. "'Tell me about the three Indians you have had at the house to-day,' says Mr. Franklin, without noticing my question. "'It's just possible, Better Edge, that my stranger and your three jugglers may turn out to be pieces of the same puzzle.' "'How do you come to know about the jugglers, sir?' I asked, putting one question on the top of another, which was bad manners, I own. "'But you don't expect much from poor human nature, so don't expect much from me.' "'I saw Penelope at the house,' says Mr. Franklin, "'and Penelope told me. "'Your daughter promised to be a pretty girl, Betteredge, "'and she has kept her promise. "'Penelope has got a small ear and a small foot. "'Did the late Mrs. Betteredge possess these inestimable advantages?' "'The late Mrs. Betteredge possessed a good many defects, sir,' says I. "'One of them, if you will pardon my mentioning it, "'was never keeping to the matter in hand.' She was more like a fly than a woman. She could settle on anything. She would just have suited me, says Mr. Franklin. I never settle on anything either. Better edge. Your edge is better than ever. Your daughter said as much when I asked for particulars about the jugglers. Father will tell you, sir, she said. He's a wonderful man for his age, and he expresses himself beautifully. Penelope's own words, blushing divinely. "'Not even my respect for you prevented me from—never mind. "'I knew her when she was a child, and she's none the worse for it. "'Let's be serious. What did the jugglers do?' "'I was something dissatisfied with my daughter, "'not for letting Mr. Franklin kiss her—Mr. Franklin was welcome to that— "'but for forcing me to tell her foolish story at second hand. "'However, there was no help for it now but to mention the circumstances.' Mr. Franklin's merriment all died away as I went on. He sat knitting his eyebrows and twisting his beard. When I had done, he repeated after me two of the questions which the chief juggler had put to the boy, seemingly for the purpose of fixing them well in his mind. "'Is it on the road to this house, and on no other, that the English gentleman will travel to-day? Has the English gentleman got it about him?' "'I suspect,' says Mr. Franklin,' "'pulling a little sealed paper parcel out of his pocket, "'that it means this. "'And this, better edge, "'means my Uncle Herncastle's famous diamond.' "'Good Lord, sir!' I broke out. "'How do you come to be in charge of the wicked colonel's diamond?' "'The wicked colonel's will has left his diamond "'as a birthday present to my cousin Rachel,' says Mr. Franklin. "'And my father, as the wicked colonel's executor,' "'has given it in charge to me to bring it down here. "'If the sea, then oozing in smoothly over the shivering sand, "'had been changed into dry land before my own eyes, "'I doubt if I could have been more surprised "'than I was when Mr. Franklin spoke those words. "'The Colonel's diamond left to Miss Rachel?' says I. "'And your father, sir, the Colonel's executor?' "'Why, I would have laid any bet you like, Mr. Franklin, "'that your father wouldn't have touched the Colonel "'with a pair of tongs.' "'Strong language, Betteredge. "'What was there against the Colonel? "'He belonged to your time, not to mine. "'Tell me what you know about him, "'and I'll tell you how my father came to be his executor, "'and more besides. "'I've made some discoveries in London "'about my Uncle Herncastle and his diamond, "'which have rather an ugly look to my eyes.' "'and I want you to confirm them. "'You called him the wicked colonel just now. "'Search your memory, my old friend, and tell me why.' "'I saw he was in earnest, and I told him. "'Here follows the substance of what I said, "'written out entirely for your benefit. "'Pay attention to it, or you will be all abroad "'when we get deeper into the story. "'Clear your mind of the children, or the dinner, "'or the new bonnet, or what not.' "'Try if you can't forget politics, horses, prices in the city, and grievances at the club. "'I hope you won't take this freedom on my part amiss. "'It's only a way I have of appealing to the gentle reader. "'Lord, haven't I seen you with the greatest authors in your hands? "'And don't I know how ready your attention is to wander "'when it's a book that asks for it, instead of a person?' "'I spoke, a little way back, of my lady's father,' the old lord with the short temper and the long tongue. He had five children in all, two sons to begin with. Then, after a long time, his wife broke out breeding again, and the three young ladies came briskly one after the other, as fast as the nature of things would permit, my mistress, as before mentioned, being the youngest and best of the three. Of the two sons, the eldest, Arthur, inherited the title and estates. The second, the Honorable John, got a fine fortune left him by a relative, and went into the army. It's an ill bird, they say, that fouls its own nest. I look on the noble family of the Herncastles as being my nest, and I shall take it as a favor if I am not expected to enter into particulars on the subject of the Honorable John. He was, I honestly believe, one of the greatest blaggards that ever lived. I can hardly say more or less for him than that. "'He went into the army, beginning in the guards. "'He had to leave the guards before he was two and twenty, "'never mind why. "'They are very strict in the army, "'and they were too strict for the Honorable John. "'He went out to India to see whether they were equally strict there "'and to try a little active service. "'In the matter of bravery, to give him his due, "'he was a mixture of bulldog and gamecock "'with a dash of the savage. "'He was at the taking of Serangatabham.' "'Soon afterwards he changed into another regiment, "'and in course of time changed into a third. "'In the third he got his last step as lieutenant colonel, "'and, getting that, got also a sunstroke "'and came home to England. "'He came back with a character "'that closed the doors of all his family against him, "'my lady, then just married, taking the lead, "'and declaring, with Sir John's approval, of course.' "'that her brother should never enter any house of hers. "'There was more than one slur on the colonel "'that made people shy of him, "'but the blot of the diamond is all I need mention here. "'It was said he had got possession of his Indian jewel "'by means which, bold as he was, "'he didn't dare acknowledge. "'He never attempted to sell it, "'not being in need of money, "'and not, to give him his due again, "'making money an object. "'He never gave it away.' HE NEVER EVEN SHOWED IT TO ANY LIVING SOUL. SOME SAID HE WAS AFRAID OF ITS GETTING HIM INTO A DIFFICULTY WITH THE MILITARY AUTHORITIES. OTHERS, VERY IGNORANT INDEED OF THE REAL NATURE OF THE MAN, SAID HE WAS AFRAID, IF HE SHOWED IT, OF ITS COSTING HIM HIS LIFE. THERE WAS PERHAPS A GRAIN OF TRUTH MIXED UP WITH THIS LAST REPORT. IT WAS FALSE TO SAY THAT HE WAS AFRAID, BUT IT WAS A FACT THAT HIS LIFE HAD BEEN TWICE THREATENED IN INDIA. "'and it was firmly believed that the moonstone was at the bottom of it. "'When he came back to England, he found himself avoided by everybody. "'The moonstone was thought to be at the bottom of it again. "'The mystery of the colonel's life got in the colonel's way "'and outlawed him, as you may say, among his own people. "'The men wouldn't let him into their clubs. "'The women, more than one, whom he wanted to marry, refused him.' Friends and relations got too near-sighted to see him in the street. Some men in this mess would have tried to set themselves right with the world, but to give in, even when he was wrong, and had all society against him, was not the way of the Honorable John. He had kept the diamond, in flat defiance of assassination, in India. He kept the diamond, in flat defiance of public opinion, in England. There you have the portrait of the man before you as in a picture, a character that braved everything, and a face, handsome as it was, that looked possessed by the devil. We heard different rumours about him from time to time. Sometimes they said he was given up to smoking opium and collecting old books. Sometimes he was reported to be trying strange things in chemistry. Sometimes he was seen carousing and amusing himself among the lowest people in the lowest slums of London. Anyhow, a solitary, vicious, underground life was the life the colonel led. Once and once only, after his return to England, I myself saw him face to face. About two years before the time of which I am now writing, and about a year and a half before the time of his death, the colonel came unexpectedly to my lady's house in London. It was the night of Miss Rachel's birthday, the twenty-first of June, "'and there was a party in honor of it, as usual. "'I received a message from the footman "'to say that a gentleman wanted to see me. "'Going up into the hall, "'there I found the colonel, wasted and worn, "'and old, and shabby, "'and as wild and as wicked as ever. "'Go up to my sister,' says he, "'and say that I have called to wish my niece "'many happy returns of the day.' "'He had made attempts by letter,' more than once already, to be reconciled with my lady, for no other purpose, I am firmly persuaded, than to annoy her. But this was the first time he had actually come to the house. I had it on the tip of my tongue to say that my mistress had a party that night, but the devilish look of him daunted me. I went upstairs with his message, and left him, by his own desire, waiting in the hall. The servants stood staring at him at a distance, as if he was a walking engine of destruction, loaded with powder and shot, and likely to go off among them at a moment's notice. My lady had a dash, no more, of the family temper. Tell Colonel Herncastle, she said, when I gave her her brother's message, that Miss Verinder is engaged, and that I declined to see him. I tried to plead for a civiler answer than that, "'knowing the colonel's constitutional superiority "'to the restraints which govern gentlemen in general. "'Quite useless.' "'The family temper flashed out at me directly. "'Well, I want your advice,' says my lady. "'You know that I always ask for it.' "'I'm not asking for it now.' "'I went downstairs with the message, "'of which I took the liberty of presenting "'a new and amended edition of my own contriving, "'as follows.' My lady and Miss Rachel regret that they are engaged, Colonel, and beg to be excused having the honour of seeing you. I expected him to break out, even at that polite way of putting it. To my surprise he did nothing of the sort. He alarmed me by taking the thing with an unnatural quiet. His eyes, of a glittering bright grey, just settled on me for a moment, and he laughed, not out of himself, like other people, but into himself, in a soft, chuckling, horridly mischievous way. Thank you, Betteridge, he said. I shall remember my niece's birthday. With that he turned on his heel and walked out of the house. The next birthday came round, and we heard he was ill in bed. Six months afterwards, that is to say, six months before the time I am now writing of, there came a letter from a highly respectable clergyman to my lady it communicated two wonderful things in the way of family news. First, that the colonel had forgiven his sister on his deathbed. Second, that he had forgiven everybody else, and had made a most edifying end. I have myself, in spite of the bishops and the clergy, an unfeigned respect for the church, but I am firmly persuaded, at the same time, that the devil remained in undisturbed possession of the Honorable John, and that the last abominable act in the life of that abominable man was saving your presence, to take the clergyman in. This was the sum total of what I had to tell Mr. Franklin. I remarked that he listened more and more eagerly the longer I went on. Also that the story of the colonel being sent away from his sister's door on the occasion of his niece's birthday seemed to strike Mr. Franklin like a shot that had hit the mark. Though he didn't acknowledge it, I saw that I'd made him uneasy, plainly enough, in his face. "'You've had your say, Betteridge,' he remarked. "'It's my turn now. "'Before, however, I tell you what discoveries I've made in London, "'and how I came to be mixed up in this matter of the diamond, "'I want to know one thing. "'You look, my old friend, "'as if you didn't quite understand the object to be answered "'by this consultation of ours. "'Do your looks belie you.' "'No, sir,' I said. "'My looks on this occasion, at any rate, tell the truth.' "'In that case,' says Mr. Franklin, "'suppose I put you up to my point of view before we go any further. "'I see three very serious questions involved in the colonel's birthday gift to my cousin Rachel.' "'Follow me carefully, Better Edge, and count me off on your fingers, if it will help you,' says Mr. Franklin.' with a certain pleasure in showing how clear-headed he could be, which reminded me wonderfully of old times when he was a boy. Question the first. Was the Colonel's diamond the object of a conspiracy in India? Question the second. Has the conspiracy followed the Colonel's diamond to England? Question the third. Did the Colonel know the conspiracy followed the diamond, and has he purposely left a legacy of trouble and danger to his sister? "'through the innocent medium of his sister's child. "'That is what I'm driving at, Better Edge. "'Don't let me frighten you.' "'It was all very well to say that, "'but he had frightened me. "'If he was right, "'here was our quiet English house "'suddenly invaded by a devilish Indian diamond, "'bringing after it a conspiracy of living rogues, "'set loose on us by the vengeance of a dead man.' There was our situation, as revealed to me in Mr. Franklin's last words. Whoever heard the like of it, in the nineteenth-century mind, in an age of progress, and then a country which rejoices in the blessings of the British Constitution? Nobody ever heard the like of it, and consequently, nobody can be expected to believe it. I shall go on with my story, however, in spite of that. When you get a sudden alarm, of the sort that I had got now, Nine times out of ten, the place you feel it is in your stomach. "'When you feel it in your stomach, your attention wanders, "'and you begin to fidget. "'I fidgeted silently in my place on the sand. "'Mr. Franklin noticed me, contending with a perturbed stomach or mind. which you please? "'They mean the same thing. "'And checking himself just as he was starting in with his part of the story. "'And he said to me sharply, "'What do you want?' "'What did I want?' I didn't tell him, but I'll tell you in confidence. I wanted a whiff of my pipe and a turn at Robinson Crusoe. We'll return with Chapter 6, right after these sponsor messages. And now, Chapter 6. Keeping my private sentiments to myself, I respectfully requested Mr. Franklin to go on. Mr. Franklin replied, "'Don't fidget, Betteredge,' and went on. "'Our young gentleman's first words informed me that his discoveries concerning the wicked colonel and the diamond had begun with a visit which he had paid, before he came to us, to the family lawyer at Hempstead. "'A chance word dropped by Mr. Franklin, when the two were alone, one day, after dinner, revealed that he had been charged by his father with a birthday present to be taken to Miss Rachel.' One thing led to another, and it ended in the lawyer mentioning what the present really was, and how the friendly connection between the late Colonel and Mr. Blake, Sr., had taken its rise. The facts here are really so extraordinary that I doubt if I can trust my own language to do justice to them. I prefer trying to report Mr. Franklin's discoveries, as nearly as may be, in Mr. Franklin's own words. you remember the time, Betteridge?' he said." "'when my father was trying to prove his title "'to that unlucky dukedom? "'Well, that was also the time "'when my uncle Herncastle returned from India. "'My father discovered that his brother-in-law "'was in possession of certain papers "'which were likely to be of service to him in his lawsuit. "'He called on the colonel, "'on pretense of welcoming him back to England. "'The colonel was not to be deluded in that way. "'You want something,' he said.' or you would never have compromised your reputation by calling on me. My father saw that the one chance for him was to show his hand. He admitted, at once, that he wanted the papers. The colonel asked for a day to consider his answer. His answer came in the shape of a most extraordinary letter, which my friend the lawyer showed me. The colonel began by saying that he wanted something of my father, and that he begged to propose an exchange of friendly services between them. The fortune of war, that was the expression he used, had placed him in possession of one of the largest diamonds in the world, and he had reason to believe that neither he nor his precious jewel was safe in any house, in any quarter of the globe, which they occupied together. Under these alarming circumstances, he had determined to place his diamond in the keeping of another person. That person was not expected to run any risk he might deposit the precious stone in any place especially guarded and set apart, like a banker's or a jeweler's strongroom, for the safe custody of valuables of high price. His main personal responsibility in the matter was to be of the passive kind. He was to undertake either by himself or by a trustworthy representative, to receive at a prearranged address, on certain prearranged days in every year, a note from the colonel, simply stating the fact that he was a living man at that date. IN THE EVENT OF THE date PASSING OVER WITHOUT THE NOTE BEING RECEIVED, THE COLONEL'S SILENCE MIGHT BE TAKEN AS A SURE TOKEN OF THE COLONEL'S DEATH BY MURDER. IN THAT CASE, AND IN NO OTHER, CERTAIN SEALED INSTRUCTIONS RELATING TO THE DISPOSAL OF THE DIAMOND AND DEPOSITED WITH IT WERE TO BE OPENED AND FOLLOWED IMPLICITLY. IF MY FATHER CHOSE TO ACCEPT THIS STRANGE CHARGE, THE COLONEL'S PAPERS WERE AT HIS DISPOSAL IN RETURN. THAT WAS THE LETTER. What did your father do, sir? I asked. Do? says Mr. Franklin. I'll tell you what he did. He brought the invaluable faculty, called common sense, to bear on the colonel's letter. The whole thing, he declared, was simply absurd. Somewhere in his Indian wanderings, the colonel had picked up with some wretched crystal which he took for a diamond. As for the danger of his being murdered, and the precautions devised to preserve his life and his piece of crystal, this was the nineteenth century, and any man in his senses had only to apply to the police. The colonel had been a notorious opium-eater for years past, and, if the only way of getting at the valuable papers he possessed was by accepting a matter of opium as a matter of fact, my father was quite willing to take the ridiculous responsibility imposed on him, all the more readily that it involved no trouble to himself.' The diamond and the sealed instructions went into his banker's strong room, and the Colonel's letters, periodically reporting him a living man, were received and opened by our family lawyer, Mr. Bruff, as my father's representative. No sensible person in a similar position could have viewed the matter in any other way. Nothing in this world, Better Edge, is probable unless it appeals to our own trumpery experience, and we only believe in our romance when we see it in a newspaper. "'It was plain to me from this "'that Mr. Franklin thought his father's notion "'about the colonel hasty and wrong. "'What's your own private opinion about the matter, sir?' "'I asked. "'Let's finish the story of the colonel first,' "'says Mr. Franklin. "'There is a curious want of system, better edge, "'in the English mind, "'and your question, my old friend, "'is an instance of it. "'When we're not occupied in making machinery, "'we are, mentally speaking, the most slovenly people in the universe. So much, I thought to myself, for a foreign education. He has learned that way of girding at us in France, I suppose. Mr. Franklin took up the lost thread and went on. My father, he said, got the papers he wanted. and never saw his brother-in-law again from that time. Year after year, on the prearranged days, the prearranged letter came from the colonel and was opened by Mr. Bruff. I'VE SEEN THE LETTERS IN A HEAP, ALL OF THEM WRITTEN IN THAT SAME BRIEF, BUSINESS-LIKE FORM OF WORDS. SIR, THIS IS TO CERTIFY THAT I AM STILL A LIVING MAN. LET THE diamond BE. JOHN HERDENCASTLE. THAT WAS ALL HE EVER WROTE, AND THAT CAME REGULARLY TO THE DAY, UNTIL SOME SIX OR EIGHT MONTHS SINCE, WHEN THE FORM OF THE LETTER VARIED FOR THE FIRST TIME. IT RAN NOW. SIR, THEY TELL ME I AM DYING. COME TO ME and help me to make my will. Mr. Bruff went, and found him, in the little suburban villa, surrounded by its own grounds, in which he had lived alone ever since he had left India. He had dogs, cats, and birds to keep him company, but no human being near him, except the person who came daily to do the housework, and the doctor at the bedside. The will was a very simple matter, "'The colonel had dissipated the greater part of his fortune "'in his chemical investigations. "'His will began and ended in three clauses, "'which he dictated from his bed, "'in perfect possession of his faculties. "'The first clause provided for the safekeeping "'and support of his animals. "'The second founded a professorship of experimental chemistry "'at a northern university. "'The third bequeathed the moonstone "'as a birthday present to his niece, "'on condition that my father would act as executor.' "'My father at first refused to act. "'On second thoughts, however, he gave way, "'partly because he was assured "'that the executorship would involve him in no trouble, "'partly because Mr. Bruff suggested in Rachel's interest "'that the diamond might be worth something after all. "'Did the Colonel give any reason, sir?' I inquired. "'Why he left the diamond to Miss Rachel?' "'He not only gave the reason, "'he had the reason written in his will.' "'said Mr. Franklin. "'I have an extract, which you shall see presently. "'Don't be slovenly-minded, Betteredge. "'One thing at a time. "'You have heard about the Colonel's will. "'Now you must hear what happened after the Colonel's death. "'It was formally necessary to have the diamond valued "'before the will could be proved. "'All the jewelers consulted "'at once confirmed the Colonel's assertion "'that he possessed one of the largest diamonds in the world.' THE QUESTION OF ACCURATELY VALUING IT PRESENTED SOME SERIOUS DIFFICULTIES. ITS SIZE MADE IT A PHENOMENON IN THE DIAMOND MARKET. ITS COLOR PLACED IT IN A CATEGORY BY ITSELF. AND, TO ADD TO THESE ELEMENTS OF UNCERTAINTY, THERE WAS A DEFECT IN THE SHAPE OF A FLAW IN THE VERY HEART OF THE STONE. EVEN WITH THIS LAST SERIOUS DRAWBACK, HOWEVER, THE LOWEST OF THE VARIOUS ESTIMATES GIVEN WAS TWENTY THOUSAND POUNDS. CONCEIVE MY FATHER'S ASTONISHMENT. "'He had been within a hair's breadth "'of refusing to act as executor "'and of allowing the magnificent jewel "'to be lost to the family. "'The interest he took in the matter now "'induced him to open the sealed instructions "'which had been deposited with the diamond. "'Mr. Bruff showed this document to me "'with the other papers, "'and it suggests, to my mind, "'a clue to the nature of the conspiracy "'which threatened the colonel's life. "'Then you do believe, sir,' I said, "'that there was a conspiracy.' "'Not possessing my father's excellent common sense,' "'answered Mr. Franklin. "'I believe the colonel's life was threatened, "'exactly as the colonel said. "'The sealed instructions, as I think, "'explain how it was that he died, after all, "'quietly in his bed. "'In the event of his death by violence, "'that is to say, "'in the absence of the regular letter from him "'at the appointed date, "'my father was then directed to send the moonstone "'secretly to Amsterdam.' It was to be deposited in that city with a famous diamond cutter, and it was to be cut up into from four to six separate stones. The stones were then to be sold for what they would fetch, and the proceeds were to be applied to the founding of that professorship of experimental chemistry, which the colonel has since endowed by his will. Now, better edge, exert those sharp wits of yours, and observe the conclusion to which the colonel's instructions point." I instantly exerted my wits. They were of the slovenly English sort, and they consequently muddled it all, until Mr. Franklin took them in hand and pointed out what they ought to see. Remark, says Mr. Franklin, that the integrity of the diamond, as a whole stone, is here artfully made dependent on the preservation from violence of the colonel's life. He is not satisfied with saying to the enemies he dreads, Kill me, and you will be no nearer to the diamond than you are now. "'It is where you can't get at it, in the guarded storeroom of a bank.' "'No. He says instead, "'Kill me, and the diamond will be the diamond no longer. "'Its identity will be destroyed.' "'What does that mean?' "'Here I had, as I thought, a flash of the wonderful foreign brightness.' "'I know,' I said. "'It means lowering the value of the stone, and cheating the rogues in that way.' "'No, nothing of the sort.' "'says Mr. Franklin. "'I have inquired about that. "'The flawed diamond cut up "'would actually fetch more than the diamond "'as it now is, for this plain reason, "'that from four to six perfect brilliants "'might be cut from it, "'which would be, collectively, "'worth more money than the large, "'but imperfect, single stone. "'If robbery for the purpose of gain "'was at the bottom of the conspiracy, "'the colonel's instructions absolutely "'made the diamond better worth stealing.' "'More money could have been got for it, "'and the disposal of it in the diamond market "'would have been infinitely easier "'if it had passed through the hands "'of the workmen of Amsterdam.' "'Lord bless us, sir,' I burst out. "'What was the plot, then?' "'A plot organized among the Indians "'who originally owned the jewel,' "'says Mr. Franklin. "'A plot with some old Hindu superstition "'at the bottom of it. "'That is my opinion.' "'confirmed by a family paper which I have about me at this moment. "'I saw now why the appearance of the three Indian jugglers at our house "'had presented itself to Mr. Franklin in the light of a circumstance worth noting. "'I don't want to force my opinion on you,' Mr. Franklin went on. "'The idea of certain chosen servants of an old Hindu superstition "'devoting themselves through all difficulties and dangers "'to watching the opportunity of recovering their sacred gem "'appears to me to be perfectly consistent with everything that we know of the patience of Oriental races, and the influence of Oriental religions. But then I am an imaginative man, and the butcher, the baker, and the tax-gatherer are not the only credible realities in existence to my mind. Let the guess I have made at the truth in this matter go for what it is worth, and let us get on to the only practical question that concerns us. "'Does the conspiracy against the Moonstone survive the Colonel's death? "'And did the Colonel know it when he left the birthday gift to his niece? "'I began to see my lady and Miss Rachel at the end of it all now. "'Not a word he said escaped me. "'I was not very willing when I discovered the story of the Moonstone,' said Mr. Franklin, "'to be the means of bringing it here. "'But Mr. Bruff reminded me that somebody must put my cousin's legacy into my cousin's hands.' "'and that I might as well do it as anybody else. "'After taking the diamond out of the bank, "'I fancied I was followed in the streets "'by a shabby, dark-complexioned man. "'I went to my father's house to pick up my luggage "'and found a letter there, "'which unexpectedly detained me in London. "'I went back to the bank with the diamond "'and thought I saw the shabby man again. "'Taking the diamond once more out of the bank this morning, "'I saw the man for the third time.' Gave him the slip and started, before he recovered the trace of me, by the morning instead of the afternoon train. Now here I am, with the diamond safe and sound. And what is the first news that meets me? I find that three strolling Indians have been at the house, and that my arrival from London, and something which I am expected to have about me, are two special objects of investigation to them when they believe themselves to be alone. "'I don't waste time and words on their pouring the ink into the boy's hand "'and telling him to look in it for a man at a distance "'and for something in that man's pocket. "'The thing, which I have often seen done in the East, "'is hocus-pocus in my opinion, as it is in yours. "'The present question for us to decide is "'whether I am wrongly attaching a meaning to a mere incident "'or whether we really have evidence of the Indians "'being on the track of the Moonstone.' THE MOMENT IT IS REMOVED FROM THE SAFE-KEEPING OF THE BANK. Neither he nor I seemed to fancy dealing with this part of the inquiry. We looked at each other, and then we looked at the tide, oozing in smoothly, higher and higher, over the shivering sand. I was thinking, sir, I answered, that I should like to shy the diamond into the quicksand and settle the question in that way. "'If you have got the value of the stone in your pocket,' "'answered Mr. Franklin, "'say so, Better Edge. "'And then it goes.' "'It's curious to note, when your mind's anxious, "'how very far in the way of relief "'a very small joke will go. "'We found a fund of merriment at the time "'in the notion of making away "'with Miss Rachel's lawful property "'and getting Mr. Blake as executor "'into dreadful trouble. "'Though where the merriment was... "'I'm quite at a loss to discover now.' "'But for that moment he gave us a chuckle. "'Mr. Franklin was the first to bring the talk "'back to the talk's proper purpose. "'He took an envelope out of his pocket, opened it, "'and handed to me the paper inside. "'Better edge,' he said, "'we must face the question of the colonel's motive "'in leaving this legacy to his niece. "'For my aunt's sake. "'Bear in mind how Lady Verinder treated her brother "'from the time he returned to England.' to the time when he told you he should remember his niece's birthday, and read that. He gave me the extract from the colonel's will. I have got it by me while I write these words, and I copy it, as follows, for your benefit. Thirdly and lastly, I give and bequeath to my niece, Rachel Verinder, daughter and only child of my sister, Julia Verinder, widow. If her mother, the said Julie Verinder, "'shall be living on the said Rachel Verinder's next birthday after my death, "'the yellow diamond belonging to me, "'and known in the east by the name of the Moonstone, "'subject to this condition, "'that her mother, the said Julia Verinder, "'shall be living at the time. "'And I hereby desire my executor to give my diamond, "'either by his own hands, "'or by the hands of some trustworthy representative whom he shall appoint, "'into the personal possession of my said niece Rachel.' on her next birthday after my death, and in the presence, if possible, of my sister, the said Julie Verinder. And I desire that my said sister may be informed, by means of a true copy of this, the third and last clause of my will, that I give the diamond to her daughter Rachel, in token of my free forgiveness of the injury which her conduct towards me has been the means of inflicting on my reputation in my lifetime, and especially in proof that I pardon as becomes a dying man, the insult offered to me as an officer and a gentleman, when her servant, by her orders, closed the door of her house against me on the occasion of her daughter's birthday. More words followed these, provided if my lady was dead, or if Miss Rachel was dead, at the time of the testator's decease, for the diamond being sent to Holland, in accordance with the sealed instructions originally deposited with it, THE PROCEEDS OF THE SALE WERE, IN THAT CASE, TO BE ADDED TO THE MONEY ALREADY LEFT BY THE WILL FOR THE PROFESSORSHIP OF CHEMISTRY AT THE UNIVERSITY IN THE NORTH. I HANDED THE PAPER BACK TO MR. FRANKLIN, SORELY TROUBLED WHAT TO SAY TO HIM. UP TO THAT MOMENT, MY OWN OPINION HAD BEEN, AS YOU KNOW, THAT THE COLONEL HAD DIED AS WICKEDLY AS HE HAD LIVED. I DON'T SAY THE COPY FROM HIS WILL ACTUALLY CONVERTED ME FROM THAT OPINION. I ONLY SAY IT STAGGERED ME. Well, says Mr. Franklin, now you have read the colonel's own statement. What do you say? In bringing the moonstone to my aunt's house, I am serving his vengeance blindfold. Or am I vindicating him in the character of a penitent and Christian man? It seems hard to say, sir, I answered, that he died with a horrid revenge in his heart and a horrid lie on his lips. God alone knows the truth. "'Don't ask me.' "'Mr. Franklin sat twisting and turning the extract from the will in his fingers, "'as if he expected to squeeze the truth out of it in that manner. "'He altered quite remarkably at the same time. "'From being brisk and bright, he now became, most unaccountably, "'a slow, solemn, and pondering young man. "'This question has two sides,' he said, "'an objective side and a subjective side.' which are we to take? He had had a German education as well as a French. One of the two had been in undisturbed possession of him, as I supposed, up to this time. And now, as well as I could make out, the other was taking its place. It is one of my rules in life, never to notice what I don't understand. I steered a middle course between the objective side and the subjective side. In plain English, I stared hard and said nothing. Let's extract the inner meaning of this, says Mr. Franklin. Why did my uncle leave the diamond to Rachel? Why didn't he leave it to my aunt? That's not beyond guessing, sir, at any rate, I said. Colonel Herncastle knew my lady well enough to know that she would have refused to accept any legacy that came to her from him. "'How did he know that Rachel might not refuse to accept it, too? "'Is there any young lady in existence, sir, "'who could resist the temptation of accepting such a birthday present "'as the Moonstone?' "'That's the subjective view,' says Mr. Franklin. "'It does you great credit, Betteredge, "'to be able to take the subjective view. "'But there is another mystery about the Colonel's legacy "'which is not accounted for yet.' How are we to explain his only giving Rachel her birthday present conditionally on her mother being alive? I don't want to slander a dead man, sir, I answered. But if he has purposely left a legacy of trouble and danger to his sister by means of her child, it must be a legacy made conditional on his sister's being alive to feel the vexation of it. Oh, that's your interpretation of his motive, is it? THE SUBJECTIVE INTERPRETATION AGAIN. HAVE YOU EVER BEEN IN GERMANY, BETTER EDGE? NO, SIR. WHAT'S YOUR INTERPRETATION, IF YOU PLEASE? I CAN SEE, SAYS MR. FRANKLIN, THAT THE COLONEL'S OBJECT MAY, QUITE POSSIBLY, HAVE BEEN, NOT TO BENEFIT HIS NIECE, WHOM HE HAD NEVER EVEN SEEN, BUT TO PROVE TO HIS SISTER THAT HE HAD DIED FORGIVING HER, AND TO PROVE IT VERY prettily BY MEANS OF A PRESENT MADE TO HER CHILD. THERE IS A TOTALLY DIFFERENT EXPLANATION FROM YOURS, BETTER EDGE, TAKING ITS RISE IN A SUBJECTIVE-OBJECTIVE POINT OF VIEW. FROM ALL I CAN SEE, ONE INTERPRETATION IS JUST AS LIKELY TO BE RIGHT AS THE OTHER. HAVING BROUGHT MATTERS TO THIS PLEASANT AND COMFORTING ISSUE, MR. FRANKLIN APPEARED TO THINK THAT HE HAD COMPLETED ALL THAT WAS REQUIRED OF HIM. HE LAID DOWN FLAT ON HIS BACK ON THE SAND AND ASKED WHAT WAS TO BE DONE NEXT. He had been so clever and clear-headed, before he began to talk the foreign gibberish, and had so completely taken the lead in the business up to the present time, that I was quite unprepared for such a sudden change as he now exhibited in his helpless leaning upon me. It was not till later that I learned, by assistance of Miss Rachel, who was the first to make the discovery, that these puzzling shifts and transformations in Mr. Franklin were due to the effect on him of his foreign training." At the age when we were all of us most apt to take our coloring, in the form of a reflection from the coloring of other people, he had been sent abroad, and had been passed on from one nation to another, before there was time for any one coloring more than another to settle itself on him firmly. As a consequence of this, he had come back with so many different sides to his character, all more or less jarring with each other, that he seemed to pass his life in a state of perpetual contradiction with himself. HE COULD BE A BUSY MAN AND A LAZY MAN, CLOUDY IN THE HEAD AND CLEAR IN THE HEAD, A MODEL OF DETERMINATION AND A SPECTACLE OF HELPLESSNESS, Altogether, HE HAD HIS FRENCH SIDE AND HIS GERMAN SIDE AND HIS ITALIAN SIDE, THE ORIGINAL ENGLISH FOUNDATION SHOWING THROUGH, EVERY NOW AND THEN, AS MUCH AS TO SAY, HERE I AM, SORELY TRANSMOGRIFIED AS YOU SEE, BUT THERE'S SOMETHING OF ME LEFT AT THE BOTTOM OF HIM STILL. "'Miss Rachel used to remark that the Italian side of him was uppermost, "'on those occasions when he unexpectedly gave in, "'and asked you in his nice, sweet-tempered way "'to take his own responsibilities on your shoulders. "'You will do him no injustice, I think, "'if you conclude that the Italian side of him was uppermost now.' "'Isn't it your business, sir?' I asked. "'To know what to do next? Surely it can't be mine.' Mr. Franklin didn't appear to see the force of my question, not being in a position at the time to see anything but the sky over his head. "'I don't want to alarm my aunt without reason,' he said, "'and I don't want to leave her without what may be a needful warning. "'If you were in my place, Better Edge, tell me in one word, what would you do?' In one word I told him. "'Wait!' "'With all my heart,' "'says Mr. Franklin. "'How long?' "'I proceeded to explain myself. "'As I understand it, sir,' I said, "Somebody's bound to put this plaguy diamond "'into Miss Rachel's hands on her birthday, "'and you may as well do it as another. "'Very good. "'This is the 25th of May, "'and the birthday is on the 21st of June. "'We have got close on four weeks before us. "'Let's wait and see what happens in that time, "'and let's warn my lady, or not.' "'as the circumstances direct us.' "'Perfect better edge, as far as it goes,' said Mr. Franklin. "'But between this and the birthday, what's to be done with the diamond?' "'What your father did with it, to be sure, sir,' I answered. "'Your father put it in the safekeeping of a bank in London. "'You put it in the safekeeping of the bank at Hall. Prison Hall was our nearest town, "'and the Bank of England wasn't safer than the bank there. "'If I were you, sir,' "'I added. "'I would ride straight away with it to Frizen Hall "'before the ladies come back. "'The prospect of doing something, "'and, what is more, "'of doing that something on a horse, "'brought Mr. Franklin up like lightning "'from the flat of his back. "'He sprang to his feet "'and pulled me up, without ceremony, "'onto mine. "'Better Edge, you're worth your weight in gold,' "'he said. "'Come along, and saddle the best horse "'in the stables directly. "'Here, God bless it, "'was the original English foundation of him, "'showing through all the foreign varnish at last. "'Here was the Master Franklin I remembered, "'coming out again in the good old way "'at the prospect of a ride. "'It reminded me of the good old times. "'Saddle a horse for him? "'I would have saddled a dozen horses, "'if he only could have ridden them all. "'We went back to the house in a hurry. "'We had the fleetest horse in the stable "'saddled in a hurry. "'And Mr. Franklin rattled off in a hurry.' to lodge the cursed diamond once more in the strong room of a bank. When I heard the last of his horse's hoofs on the drive, and when I turned about in the yard and found I was alone again, I felt half inclined to ask myself if I hadn't woke up from a dream. Thanks for joining us for these two chapters of The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins. If you're enjoying our story, please do take a few minutes and send us a review. We always appreciate reviews and they help new listeners decide to give us a try. This is your host, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Stories for the Road and the Moonstone. We'll return next Sunday at noon Eastern time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.